Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey, Brandon. Good to see you. On Thursday, September 26th, we sat down in your little office there, and for the second time, you did a AMA, an Ask Me Anything, on the website Reddit. Now, for those of you who don't know what Reddit is, it's one of the most popular websites on the internet. It's basically a giant discussion forum where people come to uh, share things, leave comments. You can upvote or downvote comments. So it's a place where the most popular, interesting, viral things tend to float to the top. It's especially popular among young men. I think that's their main demographic is 18 to 30 year old men. And these AMAs are among the most popular things on Reddit. Usually they involve a politician, a celebrity, a movie star, maybe someone who works a fascinating job. And they come on there for about an hour and just say, hey, ask me anything you want. And usually get a bunch of interesting questions. Now, we did one last year. You did one in September 2018. And it became the third most commented on AMA of the year. Number one was Bill Gates. Number two was Dr. Jordan Peterson. And then Bishop Robert Barron, this Catholic bishop, number three. So it was kind of a a new novel thing at the time. No other bishop had ever done it. So we thought that explained its success. We're not quite sure how the the second go around would would play out, but uh, you sat down there. I thought you would kind of tire out after about an hour, hour and a half. We ended up going pretty late into the night. I think, Bishop, it was like, what, like 10 p.m. or 9 p.m. when you finally said, all right, I'm going to call it a night here answering these questions. You answered hundreds of questions. And that AMA has now become either the third or second most popular of the year. We got to check the statistics. But number one was Bill Gates. Number two for this year was Bernie Sanders, the senator and presidential candidate. And then Bishop Robert Barron. We're so, almost, we're catching Bernie we're though. Catching I'm only about a hundred comments behind Bernie. I think. <laughs> so I, I, so I really, I think we'll pass him certainly by the time this episode airs. So for the rest of this episode, what I'd like to do is kind of break down what you saw and experienced on Reddit. Cause it was really revealing the, the questions that came in, the patterns that we detected among those. Um, but first of all, maybe a basic question. Uh, you were surprised that a lot of people were saying, you know, I have a lot of respect for this bishop. He has a lot of courage and he's really brave to come and do this Reddit AMA. Uh, what did you think of that? I mean, were you afraid of putting yourself out there in that way? No, because I've been doing this for, you know, 20 years. Uh, YouTube comments, which, you know, I didn't know about when I first started YouTube, I discovered. Uh, so I've been doing this kind of, you know, exchange with people for a long time. And tell you the, the God's truth, there's nothing surprising. I mean, there wasn't one question that I haven't heard, that I haven't dealt with in some way. So no, I wasn't afraid of it. Um, think about Reddit, and I'd warn anybody, you know, who's, oh, let me see what that's like. It's not for the faint of heart. I mean, people can be pretty obnoxious and and pretty juvenile and you know, uh, so you have to wade through a fair amount of that stuff. And I get it. People are mad at the church for all kinds of reasons. Um, the sex abuse scandal obviously has stirred a lot of that up. Uh, but just people's general distaste for institutions, especially religious institutions, all that comes through. And again, I'm used to it, but it can kind of wear you out. But as you say, once you get through that, you do see, I think, a lot of religious passion, interest, question, aspiration. And again, as you say, these are young men, mostly 18 through 30. Talk about a demographic we don't reach very well in the Catholic Church or any church. So 
I'm happy from kind of a missionary standpoint to wade into that territory. And, you know, let's face it, there are missionaries who who died doing their missionary work. I'm not going to be dying on, on Reddit, you know, so it's a very minor little suffering that I have to go through. So I should be willing to put up with that, uh, some of the opprobrium that you get. But I think it's really a worthwhile exercise. It's funny you mentioned the image of the martyrs because I thought the same thing. We're sitting in your office, you know, we, we just had pizza and Coke and we're sitting at a computer and they're like, wow, you're really brave for this dangerous missionary activity. Yeah. It's yeah, like, no. oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but behind that, um, I, I think there's a lot of, there's a huge sense among the Reddit community that as a Catholic bishop, you putting yourself out there for questions and objections was a very vulnerable thing for you because I imagine they think your beliefs are so shallow and arbitrary that the, <laughs> guess, the very yeah. first objection that comes, you're going to be stuck. You know, it, it's like it, it surprised me how how shallow they thought your beliefs were. Well, right, and you know, I said it's true. I, I, I've seen all these objections before, but heck, they've been around for two thousand years. If you have any acquaintance with the theological tradition, the philosophical tradition. The issues that came up, and they're good. I, I'm not. I'm not putting them down for a second. They're good issues to raise, but as you suggest, they're not new. <laughs> and the church has been has been uh, engaging these questions for a long time. And some of the smartest people in the West, you know, prior to the scientific revolution, some of the very smartest people went into philosophy and theology. And so there are answers available to these great uh, challenging questions. And maybe the young people today aren't as aware of that. Okay, well, what I'd like to do for the rest of the episode is I mentioned we detected these major patterns of questions. You know, I think there was 15.3 thousand comments that were left, yeah. so a ton of them. You could barely scratch hardly any of them, um, but they did kind of fall into similar groups or patterns. Uh, yep. So we detected five here. So the first one, and I think it stood out to both of us that this AMA in 2019 was dramatically different from the 2018 one particularly when it came to the sex abuse crisis, because in between those two events was the whole McCarrick Gary. scandal and everything that came right. along with it. There were, I would say, at least a thousand, maybe a couple thousand of just real snarky, juvenile, vitriolic things about, you know, hey, how many how many kids have you abused? Or why does the church cover yeah. this or that up? I mean, what'd you make of that? Were you, were you surprised by it? What, what'd you think? No, not really. I, I think the McCarrick part of this scandal in some ways, was worse even than 2002. Um, so that it really broke in 2002 with the Boston cases and all that. We took, you know, very strong steps. Dallas, of course, but mind you, one thing I discovered on this thing is the vast majority, at least of the Reddit audience, they don't know about that. They don't know about what the church has done to address the issue. So, but we did all that addressing of it institutionally, and then when the McCarrick thing broke out. I think it really frustrated people. I think it really, um, it angered people. And I get it. That's where, you know, my letter to a suffering church came from, was that sense, my own sense of of deep frustration at it. So, no, I wasn't really surprised by it. And, you know, I'm used to it. Whenever you, you wade into the arena as a religious figure today, especially a Catholic religious figure, you're going to get it. You're going to get an awful lot of that stuff. Okay. So that was probably the biggest first group of comments, not an argument, not really anything substantial, no. just little insults and vitriol. The second one, though, which I think was the the first substantial set of comments had to do with God's existence. There were a lot of people asking you, I think sincerely, can yeah. you offer any sort of proof for your God? Can you prove that God exists? 
Yeah. And, you know, I, I like that, Brandon. I thought it showed, um, and these weren't snarky comments. Maybe a couple had that edge like, hey, you know, show me anything that, you know, uh, is a rational basis for your crazy belief. But I think most of them were not like that. They were honest and sincere um, inquiries about it. Several of them said, like, you know, without referring to the Bible, just, you know, if someone's totally a skeptic, yeah, I get it. And our our great tradition has done just that. You know, we have the famous arguments from St. Thomas Aquinas. You have the ontological argument of St. Anselm. You've got many figures in the great tradition who have proposed precisely that, rational arguments for God. You know, I think the new atheist um, moment, uh, I know it has impacted young people a lot. And so they say, look, hasn't this all been debunked? Aren't these, um, aren't the arguments in favor of God's non-existence? So I was happy to say, yeah, there are. And I think I was able to rehearse maybe a bit of the argument from contingency. You know, a drawback of the of this AMA thing is that you know, you're being inundated with questions to you know, sit down and do a careful rehearsal of the of the contingency argument, looking at all its classical objections. I mean, it would take you, you know, 20 minutes to do that. In the meantime, you're missing. So I was able to do it in a very, you know, truncated way. But still, I was kind of gratified. To me, it showed that, you know, that hunger for God, the interest in God. Um, and I'm, look, I'm a Catholic theologian. I think it's good to engage the mind. I, I like the mind's questions. I, I'm not going to put those to sleep or say, oh, no, you shouldn't be asking for arguments. No, no, our, our greatest figures are very happy with arguments for God. So um, I was sort of, you know, encouraged by that. It was also revealing to me, and maybe this is a lesson for all Catholic evangelists and teachers, the alarming number of commenters who believed that our conviction about God, our belief in Catholicism, our belief in Jesus, that all of that is sort of just arbitrary, that we sort of just fell into it because of where we were born or how our parents raised us, but we would never have reasons for believing any of these things. A lot of the commenters seem to genuinely believe that, that we kind of just believe things arbitrarily. Did you sense that too? Oh yeah, that's one of the major categories. And I must say, I was a little bit surprised maybe, but the more I reflected on it, I thought, no, it, it does um, come out of a lot of the cultural matrix of our time. Namely, this view, as you say, that religion is like a hobby. So, you know, you have your little hobby, I got my little hobby, and that's nice. But, you know, you'd never think, boy, I'm going to impose my hobby on you. Or I think everyone should have the same hobby. Well, of course not. No one thinks that is right. Well, if religion's at that level, then anything like, you know, evangelizing or propagating your faith or trying to convince someone is offensive, it's intolerant, it's epistemologically invalid. I mean, all those things. So I heard a lot of those questions. Like, how do you know your religion is right? Uh, and if I were to surrender and say, oh, well, you know, it's just my little private uh, conviction, they'd back off, I suppose. But no, it is essential to Christianity to say, yeah, this is the right perspective. Now, here's what I did typically with those questions. I was careful to walk the Vatican II line, which is to say, no, there are a lot of points of light and there are a lot of um, elements of truth in all the great religions. So you go through you know, Islam or Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, uh, Confucianism. I can point to all sorts of things in those traditions, I think are true, that would, if you want, overlap with truths within the Christian tradition. But at the same time, let's be honest, there are a lot of things that are simply out of step with Catholic Christianity. And so 
we do make the discrimination that, yeah, our perspective is, is right. And these are at least relatively wrong. Now, what I did further, Brandon, was I think with one interlocutor, because there were, again, thousands of people raising this question, I did a real quick little demonstration, just using simple kind of Thomistic principles to show that a Trinitarian monotheism is a rationally defensible point of view. Now, I, I would be flabbergasted if that little demonstration, oh, that convinces my interlocutor. I'd be flabbergasted. But my purpose wasn't so much that. My purpose was to show, at least in, in um, short compass, what theological reasoning looks like so that we're not just trading in private uh, convictions and, and uh, um, likes and dislikes at the level of hobbies. We are making an argument and you can and should make religious arguments. Now, not oppressively, not violently, not imposing and all those bad things. But you make an argument. And I do think that's lost on a lot of young people. Uh, they don't know that you even can do that, much less should do it. <laughs> that you, you could even think through an issue theologically doesn't uh, occur to a lot of the young people. And so it's kind of a, you know, on the snarky side of the spectrum, like, well, you know, how dare you think that your religion is, is right? Well, I don't know. People think, you know, their political convictions are right, don't they? They don't say, well, you know, it's your little hobby is to be a Republican and my hobby is to be a Democrat, but who am I to tell you what to think? Oh, come on. We argue all the time about politics, right? And if, if you're a convinced Republican, yeah, you want the whole country to be Republican. I'm sure you do. Uh, so why can we argue about politics, but we can't argue about religion? Um, so anyway, that, that was a very strong motif. Haunting that view, it calls to mind, we've discussed this before, Dr. Christian Smith's research, which found that among millennials, yeah. there is a deep hesitancy to make any definitive statements about yeah. God or religion. It's not just that they don't think it's possible. It's like they're almost allergic to like settling on one position and saying, this thing is true. This statement is true about God or this religious statement is true. They kind of want to leave all the options open. Did you sense yeah. that too? Yeah, that's part of it, the, the relativism of the culture. And I guess that conviction, right, that I would just be deeply intolerant if I did that. But again, I would use example of politics. Young people, in my experience, they love arguing about politics. They, they're not uh, blandly relativistic when it comes to politics. You get like a young, let's say, Bernie Sanders supporter. Not that I, I am going after you, Bernie. I'm trying to get more comments. Third, third most commented on yeah, AMA the, the, of right, year. the third most. Uh, but I, I know a lot of young Bernie Sanders supporters. Yeah, they, they'll argue vigorously for his position. And they'll tell a lot of people that they're wrong not to be holding it. Well, why is that okay in the political realm, but it's not okay in the religious realm? Um, now, I know we have a terrible history. There is a terrible history of, of religious people being deeply violent and intolerant and you know all those bad things. But I think argument is a way forward because it shows that you can be objective and make truth claims without being violent. You know, let's talk, let's use words. Uh, what's the famous Churchill line? You know, jaw, jaw is better than wah, wah. You know, <laughs> it's always better to talk something through than to fight about it. So let's do some jaw-jaw. Let's do some talking about religion. All right. A third category of comments that clearly emerged during the AMA pertain to the perennial problem of evil. What, what form did these types of comments take? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm mean, a huge. Uh, 
how could there be a, a loving and just God if there's so much violence, evil, suffering in the world? You know, it struck me, Brandon, um, several of them used versions of, of the Dostoevsky argument. Go back to the Brothers Karamazov, right? Written by one of the great ardent Christians of the 19th century, Dostoevsky. But in this novel, he has these brothers, right, that represent different aspects of the mind and the heart and everything. One of the brothers, Alyosha, is, is this profoundly religious man. But his brother, Ivan, is a, a rationalist and no time for religion. And he goes after Alyosha. How's he do it? In a famous section of the Brothers Karamazov, he rehearses uh, stories. And they think Dostoevsky got many of them from newspapers. They were like real life accounts of children being tortured. And, and what strikes you, the reason he did it is, can you imagine something more horrific? You know, so someone dies in a, in a natural disaster, like, oh, well, okay, hurricanes and all that kind of happen. Or um, someone dies in a war and said, well, he's an adult and knew what he was doing, got involved. Something about willfully torturing a child just seems to be the sort of neck plus ultra of, of wickedness. Okay, so several of my interlocutors, I don't know if they were Dostoevsky followers, but they brought that forward, things like that. How could there be a God, right, if such things happen? Now, here, first observation is, there is nothing new about this problem. It's not as though, oh, people in the last, you know, 25 years have figured this out. And boy, religious people, they've never thought about this problem. <laughs> Gosh, go back, Brandon, to the book of Habakkuk. Go back to the prophet Isaiah. Go back to the book of Job. Go back to the Psalms. The Bible is filled with the wrestling with this precisely this problem. The biblical authors know all about it. The best example in the Old Testament is the book of Job. Again, someone who experiences an innocent man, but extraordinary suffering. How do you still believe in God? I mean, so that the first observation is, We've been here before. This is a very ancient problem. Moreover, some of the smartest people in the great intellectual tradition of the West have wrestled precisely with this problem. It's been said, I think with some legitimacy, that all of theology begins with theodicy, this problem of, of justifying the ways of God in the face of evil that all of theology commences and centers around theodicy. So the problem is very old. Some very smart people have wrestled with it. So in that way, no, I'm not surprised that this question would come up. I agree furthermore with those that say um, it's the only really serious argument against God's existence. If you look at all the you know, critiques of belief in God, it's the one that's most persuasive. You know? Final observation. Many of the kids, I say kids, who knows? They could have been older people too. Um, they presented this in terms of the famous uh, dilemma. I know it from John Stuart Mill. They were citing it like an older form of it. But John Stuart Mill, who said, um, if, if God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, there wouldn't be evil, right? Because he'd know about it. He's all-knowing. He could do something about it. He's all-powerful. And he'd want to do something about it because he's all-loving. Therefore, if there's evil, then that God can't exist. So several of the people on Reddit would kind of hurl that at me, like, you know, here's the definitive uh, disproof of your God. And, and I know, I know, whenever you attempt this um, 
explanation it, it to anyone who suffers it, it seems uh, grossly inadequate but see what that dilemma overlooks is another very very real and and uh, and uh, compelling possibility namely that god permits certain forms of evil to bring about goods that could not exist in any other way right and and anyone who's lived a little bit knows examples of this that it's only because of that great suffering or that great loss or that great failure that I got or experienced or was brought to something good, right? So we, we all have experience of it to a limited degree. Now, put that against the backdrop of an infinite mind that is surveying all of space and time. What God permits and why is infinitely beyond our ken. And there's, there's nobody who can say with utter confidence, oh, I, I get it. I, I see the whole pattern. How could you? How could you possibly see the whole pattern? Therefore, the claim, which is the premise of all these arguments, that fill in the blank, this type of suffering is pointless, has no purpose, is irreconcilable with the design. I mean, I, I get the emotional power of it. I feel it as anyone who suffered. But it's really not a compelling rational argument because it assumes you have that kind of grasp of God's purposes. Anyway, I'm scratching the surface of the surface of the surface of this problem. And I was actually, I was happy to see it, Brandon, because it's a great and classical religious uh, dilemma. But it shows they're still interested, right? They're still interested in finding a way through this thicket. All right, let's talk about one final category of questions. We've talked a little bit about uh, the sex abuse crisis, God's existence, this religious particularism. How do you know your religion is the right one? And then the problem of evil. The final set of questions that were very prominent had to do with homosexuality. What were some of the examples of these sorts of questions? Yeah, it's very striking. And if you go on this thing and I'm listening to these, again, mostly younger people, um, the prevalence, the prominence, the, the insistence that the church hates uh, gay people, that the church is, you know, violently uh, uh, intolerant, that it excludes, that it's, you know, negative toward gay people. How could it be so cruel, et cetera? I mean, so over and over and over again. And you know, all the studies, have, I'm not surprised because all the studies have shown that especially among younger people, this becomes the most pressing uh, issue of sexual morality. For older audiences, it was more the um, uh, sex outside of marriage or or sex or divorce and remarriage, right? But for the younger people, it's the gay issue and the transgender issue, I would say, are, are prominent. You know, I, I won't begin to get into all the, all the details of, of the church's moral vision, but I'll say just this, Brandon. Um, when the church used the language, and it did it, it's in the catechism, and it was under Benedict XVI and John Paul II as well. When the church used the language of homosexual acts as intrinsically disordered, right? Well, people who are trained in sort of Aristotelian teleological ethics know what that language means. It means that, that certain acts by their very nature are not suitable to the completion of their natural end or finality. Okay. In that sense, they are disordered in an intrinsic way, meaning that, that, that by its very nature, that act cannot attain the end or purpose of that act. 
here's the thing. What everyone overlooked, and, and I'll get back to I, I don't think the church is, is free of blame here. Uh, the distinction between a homosexual person and, and a homosexual act. The church never said in its teaching that gay people are intrinsically disordered. Because let's face it, the way a lot of people took in that sort of careful Aristotelian language was, well, I guess the church thinks gay people are twisted and contemptible. I think that's how how it was received. Is that what the church meant? Clearly not. Clearly not. But could we have been better at communicating our teaching and making the right distinctions? I think those questions do answer themselves. And so I, I think that's a great pastoral challenge to the church, is how we communicate our teaching about certain acts and how we distinguish that from our attitude toward gay people who are beloved children of God and are welcome members of the family of the church. I mean, I think that needs to be said again and again and again. Um, so that's that's a first reaction to the extraordinary interest in this question and the extraordinary amount of energy around it. Um, I think we've got to get better at laying out our distinctions and laying out what our teaching actually is. So you've done two of these Reddits now, close to 30,000 comments that have rolled in. You've responded to hundreds of them. Was it worth it? What's your overall take on these AMAs? Yes. And and I'll I'll be honest, Brandon, with you. Like the end of that first day, I was pretty worn out. And not just from, you know, typing answers to 500 questions. I was worn out by the vitriol. And when I've, I've dipped back into the Reddit AMA, there's always part of me that goes like, oh, God, oh, God. Like it, it does wear you out, and it is a tough slog. I don't want to over dramatize it. I'm no great, you know, missionary martyr or anything, but it's a tough slog getting through so much negativity and so much vitriol. So I'll, I'll admit that, and and that that leads me to say I'm glad I'm not doing it every day. Okay, having said that, in answer to your question, I'd say yes. Nevertheless, it's worth it because I think. Once you get through a lot of that, you do come up against real religious passion, interest, questions. And I think the church, with all of its negativity, which is no doubt there, uh, but the church should be in that world. It should be in that space. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. Today, we're hearing from Zach, who lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. He's got a question about mercy and justice. Here's Zach. Hi, Bishop Barron. It's Zach from Knoxville, Tennessee. In a very early podcast, you discussed mercy and justice, and you gave a concrete example of justice with someone who committed a crime and still has to serve time. And then you discussed mercy transcending or mocking justice, but you didn't give a concrete example. Could you give a concrete example of how mercy transcends or mocks justice? Thank you very much in advance. Yeah, good. Thanks for that question. Um, You know, that language, first of all, comes from the letter of James. And people have asked me about this. I think it's chapter two of James, that God, of course, is a God of justice, but his mercy, and it depends on how you render the Greek there, but transcends or mocks justice, that it goes beyond it. 
See, what's justice? Justice is rendering to each his due, right? That's the classic definition. So, you know, someone's committed a crime, well, they're, they're due punishment for that crime. Um, there's a kind of a tit-for-tat quality about um, uh, justice. It's, a, um, it's an answering in kind, rendering to each his due. Well, what's mercy and why does it go beyond justice is, is rendering to someone what's not due to him or her, right? It's rendering to him or her a good that they don't deserve. I'll give you the best concrete example. If any of us gets to heaven, it'll be an act of mercy on God's part. Anyone that would stand before God's judgment seat and say, uh, Lord, okay, I deserve this. <laughs> and let me tell you why, because I've done. Look, if any of us is saved, it'll be an act of, of mercy that, thank God, will mock justice. Because any one of us standing before the, the judgment seat of God if all we had was justice, I think we'd all end up in, in hell. You know, if we're saved, it's because of this, this splendid mercy of God. That's why the cross of Jesus, think of it this way, you know, that we use that language of God pouring out his wrath on Jesus and, and whatever that means, that's complicated language. But it's something like uh, uh, justice being expressed so that an ever greater mercy could be expressed. That's why the cross is is a sign of God's merciful love. Um, it's it's if you want the best sign of mercy mocking justice would be the cross of Jesus. Um, so if any of us get to heaven, that's the concrete example of what you're talking about. Well, it's a great question, Zach, and thanks to all of you for listening to this episode. If you want to read the Reddit AMA that we've been talking about, you can find it at wordonfire.org slash Reddit. Reddit is R-E-D-D-I-T. Check it out and sort the comments by the top comments or the best comments. You'll see a little filter there. When you do, I think you'll find a very revealing picture of what a lot of young people are thinking about when it comes to religion today. So if you're maybe a priest, a teacher, an evangelist, even a parent, this will give you a good snapshot of what's on young people's minds when it comes to faith. Well, and thanks it's for rated R, so just be careful. <laughs> yeah, I, I should I probably mean, add that little spoiler <laughs> alert. Is you'll, it's you'll rated R. There will the, be some comments that will likely make yeah. you blush or right. you know, be concerned for the state of humanity. Uh, but. Again, check it out, wordonfire.org slash reddit. Well, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Yeah.